0: Let us turn then, and we are in Exodus chapter 20, and we're continuing our exposition really through the book of Exodus, but as we've come to the Ten Commandments, we are going in slow motion and taking each command one at a time as we go. And here we are, we're now at the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. And that sets up all kinds of things as you hear this command, you shall not steal, on really the fabric for society, how society works, how we must treat one another, and so many times over. And really, to maybe to your surprise, it clashes with what many have wanted in our age and in our day. If only you could just imagine. Imagine. There's no countries. It isn't a hard thing to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people. Now, nobody start singing, please. Living life in peace you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Sounds nice. John Lennon could try. But God's ideal is far different than what's set up in John Lennon's Imagine. He goes on. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Again, maybe at first sounds nice, but no, John, that's never going to work. Greed and hunger won't go away just because people are forced to be brothers and share everything. That was something that Marx got really, really wrong as the communists failed experiments and their trampling of human rights had proved time and again over and over. Now to that, Maybe you hear some of those ideals, and you remember even from the book of Acts, and you say, oh, but weren't the early Christians a communist of a sort? I mean, it says in the book of Acts that they shared everything and held everything in common. But that was a far different context to understand than the removal of even the very notion of personal property and right to ownership. No, the early Christians sold their possessions Their actual property they had rights to. Peter even reminds this to Ananias and Sapphira for their lying about it. But they sold the things they possessed so they might then be generous from their abundance. That's very different than from widespread government theft called forced redistribution of wealth. That's not the biblical ideal. That's even set out here in the Ten Commandments, giving us the very foundations and fabric of our society. Because you see, the Scriptures establish and assume one's right to personal property because with that comes then the command, thou shalt not steal. You understand then, this is how fundamental, how foundational this command must be, thou shalt not steal, just for the very outworking coexistence in our society is really grounded on this truth. We're going to consider that this morning. But you must understand this command is actually at far more than this. There's more to it than that. This command will then cover, it's far more than what you stop doing or what you don't do. This command is really a generous do. So if you could summarize, how do you fulfill this command? What does it look like? What's, What's God calling His people to live like? In the first place, of course, don't be a taker. Don't be a stealer. Don't be one who takes from other people what's rightfully theirs. Yes, but it's more than this. Be a hardworking, generous giver. And until you get to that step, you have not fulfilled what's at the intent of this command, thou shalt not steal. Don't be a taker. Don't be a stealer. Be a hardworking, generous giver. And we're going to uncover and unpack this truth as we consider really the heart of the steal—we've called it really the heart of theft and thieving. And so we're going to look first in the first of three facets of this question about what does it mean to steal and how does this work. We're going to look first as what does it mean to steal? What does it mean to thieve, if we can use that term? What's the heart of thieving? And We're going to look at the command in Exodus 20, but then we're going to look at the different case law or the or the falling out of the different implications of that principle in Exodus 22 and Exodus, or excuse me, Leviticus 19. Well, we'll get there, but we first got to just look at the command itself, Exodus 20, verse 15, and you see that this is just part of the genius of this law given at Sinai, that something so concise can be so powerful, so foundational, so important to the, just the very fabric of society. And I say so concise, it's concise in your English Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's even more concise. In the Hebrew Bible, it's just two words, and you can maybe just translate it this way, don't steal. Or Exodus 20, verse 15, as it says in our English versions, you shall not steal. Now, I went to school for a little bit of time, and I got to study Hebrew, and so I did some deep dive, don't steal don't take what's not yours. Uh, just on the face of it, 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 we know what this is about. You don't take what doesn't belong to you. You don't have a right to it. It's not in your possession. It's not in your grasp. It's not yours. If you take it, that's stealing, that's sin. Uh, and we know this from the very beginning of life. You know this as a baby or as a toddler. You know, whether you were the victim of your toy being swiped by some other kid's chubby hands, and then you ran off to mama to go tell on them, Or maybe this was more likely, Mama came and found you playing with some toy that wasn't yours. That's not your toy, Ricky. You can ask to share, Ricky, but you can't just take it from and give it back. That's what my mom said. (laughs) As children, we just quickly learn this principle there's a right to possession, a right to property. Mine, right? Mine. Sometimes it's just selfishness, but sometimes it is justice. What belonged to you was taken from you. Mine, mine, mine. You have a right to things. You have a right to the things you've made. You have a right to the things you've produced. Things that have been given to you by God for your possession. You have a right to them. They're yours. They've been given to you by God as a steward. They're not anyone else's. And that's the underlying truth that makes sense of this great command that thou shall not steal cuz think of it this way conversely if there is no right to personal property or possession the command to not steal doesn't make any sense that is if everything's communal if nobody really owns or belong, or has possession of anything else nothing belongs to anyone Or you might say then it belongs to everyone. So you can't then steal it from someone else. Do you see? The command to not steal assumes people have a right to personal property, to possess things, to be stewards of those things given to them by God. And that's being laid out here even in the Ten Commandments. Such that to transgress that right of someone else to possess, that is theft. Stealing, and God's really concerned about that. He's concerned about that, and it'll show in a couple different ways. And one I want to show you is that in the He's really concerned about the law of restitution. So in the Ten Commandments, you have these overarching principles. These are the governing principles for how Israel needs to live as the people of God. But then in the specifics, and that's what unfolds in kind of like this case law. Well, how does that principle get applied in the particular situations of life? And a big part as it relates to stealing is this idea of restitution. And to show you this, I want to turn to Exodus chapter 22. So just flip over maybe one page, and we're in the 22nd chapter of Exodus. Because God's going to tell us, well, what are you supposed to do when a theft has taken place? As we consider that, we'll uncover a bit more what, what this underlying principle is all about. But you'll see when theft has taken place, it's all about restitution. It's all about paying it back. It's all about making it right. So as it begins, we look at verse 1 of chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, and the operative word there, of course, is steals. That's the same very word that's in the commandment of the 10. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, the idea is he doesn't even have it anymore he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Whoa, that's pretty steep, isn't it? Uh, to try to think of an equivalent, what are we be dealing with like with oxen sheep? Most of us, I trust, well, some of you do that live way out in Powhatan. Most of us don't have oxen sheep. A lot of you have chickens, but that's a whole nother story. So, what, but maybe somebody steals your car. What are you supposed to do? It seems like the equivalent is you give them that car back, if you could, and four more. That's quite a lot. Ancient Near Eastern cultures around Israel in this time, they had their own law codes, and they also really discouraged theft. But they discouraged it, I would say, in much harsher ways. Like, if you steal, your hand gets lopped off. Or you might even be put to death for theft in these other ancient Near Eastern cultures. So Israel is quite distinct this way. Actually, as the law plays out in the Bible... You can be put to death for theft, but only if you steal one particular thing. Can you guess what that might be? If you steal a person. If you're a kidnapper, you steal a soul, or then you buy that person, you are also guilty and would be put to death under Old Testament law. But you see, the the value God places on people versus stuff, right? Right? People, image bearers, are worth far more. And that plays out in contrast to the law given to Israel versus the other nations around them. But that doesn't mean God doesn't care about our stuff or the right of possession. Oh, He certainly does. And you see it here as you're to repay four or five times if you can't return the actual thing. Or if you look down to verse 4, you might say it's a little more reasonable. Here it is. It says in verse 4, "...if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession..." whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. So, you got to give back the thing you stole because you still have it, and then you can give one more. That's the restitution. It's trying to make it right. That's what justice requires in God's framework. So, you see, that only, though, makes sense if you have a right to possess things. You don't have a right to go take someone else's car or to go take their ox or their sheep. It's theirs. It belongs to them. It's under their trust, under their ownership. And if you take it, you have to give it back. And more than that, you need to give restitution for what was lost in it being stolen, whether it's the use of the animal or item or even just the shame of being robbed. But restitution only makes sense in a notion of personal property. And so it's any kind of theft is when you undermine that right to personal property. And we see that as what continues to unfold in this law. For there's different kinds of thefts. There's the straight steel that we see listed in these first four verses. But look at how the command continues to elaborate on this principle set up in the Eighth Command. Look at verse 5. Still dealing with restitution. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field... He shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and his own vineyard. So what's the picture? You're not keeping track of your animals. They get out and they go fill themselves, gorging themselves on your neighbor's vineyard. What have you done? You have stolen from your neighbor. Maybe you didn't mean to, but by your negligence, you stole his crops. He can't get them back. Your animal ate them. And that's a theft by negligence that you must make up for. You're on the hook for for taking his possessions that belong to him. You need to make it right. Similarly, down to verse 6, talks about if a fire breaks out. You start a fire, the fire gets out of control. It burns up all the crops of your neighbor. In effect, by this principle, you stole from your neighbor all of his crops. So you're on the hook for those. You need to make restitution. You need to make it right. Again, this only makes sense where people are entrusted with stuff. They have the right to possess things, to own. And that's why returning what is stolen, even giving restitution, only makes sense when you have the right to possess. And if they have a right to it, because it's theirs, you don't have a right to it. And if you try and exercise a right over it, that's not yours, that's theft, that's stealing, that's sin. Now to return to the command itself, thou shalt not steal, there's another aspect we need to bring up that's an emphasis here. Because in the Hebrew, there are two different words mainly to describe theft or stealing. And how to describe or distinguish them would be to show you in stealing. One, on the one hand, you're using force to get what you want. You might call that robbery. Robbery. On the other hand, in stealing, you're using stealth, you're using trickery, you're using secrecy. And you can see the difference and distinction in these Hebrew words as we look over at Leviticus chapter 19. So flip over just to the next book in your Bible and look with me at Leviticus chapter 19. Because conveniently, these two words, in effect, to rob and steal, occur in very close proximity. And we can see from the context how they are similar but different. So in the first place we're in Leviticus 19 picking up read with me in verse 11. He commands and says you shall not steal. This is almost word for word to the 10th commandment. So this is the same or the eighth commandment from the 10. This is the same word steal that we saw in the 10. You shall not steal. But then look what's surrounding it. Look how this kind of fits th- one another. Do you know then what this kind of stealing is? It's a steal from trickery. It's a steal from deception. You're taking advantage of someone else. You're dealing falsely with them. You're cheating them. It's lying in a business deal to prey upon them and take advantage. That's the kind of theft first forbidden here. Now, in contrast, you look down to verse 13 of Leviticus 19, and we have the other kind of stealing, you might say, the other approach to the theft. In other words, it's armed robbery. Leviticus 19.13, You shall not oppress your neighbor, the idea is with force, or rob him. This is where you use force. This is where you've used violence, maybe even your authority in the society to take from others, and they have no recourse to stop you. This can look like oppression. This is like the bully at the playground taking the kid's lunch money, Right? It's the armed carjacker. Maybe even in broad daylight, it's the oppressive landowner who won't give his workers his wages. That's all wrong. It's all theft of a kind. But God more precisely forbids the deception kind, back to the Ten Commandments. Why does He focus on the deception kind of stealing versus the armed robbery kind of stealing? Well, I think this is the answer, is that the secrecy kind of theft hits all of us. In other words, not everybody in here is strong enough or well-armed enough just to go take stuff from people and they have no recourse. Uh, Not everybody in here, not everyone anyway, is well-armed enough (laughs) to just take stuff from people that they won't try and uh, fight back. But have you ever shaded the truth? To cheat someone out of what is rightfully theirs to get an advantage from them. That's stealing. That's theft. That's sin. In Israel, that looked like, namely a couple things. They were forbidden to use unjust weights and measures, it was called. So this is an ancient context. You didn't have standardized weights and measures to come by very easily. So if you were doing a business deal, you might have a sack of your stones. You're going to put them on the scale, and you're going to weigh out the certain spices. And to your advantage, when they're giving you a certain amount of stones, you're going to get out your heavy five-pound stone and put it on the scale. Oh, yeah, keep piling on. Oh, you're almost there. And then you're going to pay them five pounds of something. Oh, I have another five-pound stone that's a little lighter. These are ways to shade the truth. It gives all the appearance of everything's above board. But really, you're cheating them out of what's rightfully theirs. Or you could, you know move your, uh, the landmarker of your neighbor. You think of this ancient context. Some of you even have property and land. you understand this perhaps. But uh, if you've got large tracts of land, for example, you, you might not go visit every corner of all of your property. And so if your neighbor moved it over, how would you ever know? And if he tilled it and cultivated it, you might never know for a long time, and yet that's land stealing. You've stolen from them taken what's theirs. Okay, but what does this look like in our world? Because I doubt many of us, most of us, you know, in the middle of the night are going to go to our neighbor and take down that fence and move it five feet closer to his house so you can reclaim five more feet of that flower bed. You're not going to do that in the middle of the night, or if you thought about it, don't, of course, right? But what does it look like in our world, this kind of deception? Well, again, it's, it's any time you're taking advantage of someone, you're cheating them out of what's rightfully theirs, what they deserve. You're cheating them out of what's best for them so you can have something instead, something for your advantage. That's stealing. So maybe it's how you fill out your taxes with the government, that you are less than forthright about all the payments you received. Because, well, that kind of payment all came in cash and there were really no receipts and it really wasn't income then, I don't think. Or how about at work? Do you ever steal back your time as your own from your employer by not working even though you're on the clock? So your employer pays you for 40 hours of work, but you really worked, oh, I don't know, 35. And then you spent the other five hours messing around, wasting time in your phone, or you extended your lunch break by 25 minutes every day. He paid you for 40 hours, but you didn't do the 40 hours of work on purpose, and you were effectively stealing that money you should have received, and you did receive it from your employer. Or is anyone here in sales? Have you ever, have you ever oversold your company's product or service? You know, overpromise? Just so you can get the sale? That's theft if you can't deliver. But the whole industry does that, Rick. You got to know how sales work. And do you think the Lord wants His people just to follow the business dealings of the world? Or how about this? You ever sold something to somebody that didn't work or didn't work right? You know, like that car, you know it needs a new transmission. You know the check engine light should be on, but it's probably burned out, so they can't tell. And they're coming to look at the car, and you're not about to let them know about that? Why? Because otherwise, Rick, they're not going to buy the car if they know it needs a new transmission. Would you want to know about that if you were buying it? What did you tell them? Were they then assuming from what you said that the transmission's good? Do you see how you're shading the truth to steal from them, even a transmission? That's theft. That's deception. That's stealing. That's sin. To boil it down, I think the reformer Martin Luther captured the idea quite well. He said this, We break the Eighth Commandment whenever we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing That results in loss to him. We take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. You know, this is one of the genius things about capitalism, actually, is that a good business deal is necessarily a win win for both parties. That's why they willingly go into the agreement, because both people benefit. That's what's just and right and fair in a business agreement. Now, it might not be equally a win, true. Not everybody benefits in the same measure, but both parties should feel better off coming out of the deal. That's why you bother having the deal, right? Well, that's what you should be seeking anytime you do a deal, say, on eBay or Facebook Marketplace or at the garage sale. That is, your mentality shouldn't be, how can I get this for the cheapest possible price? No, your mentality should be, How can I benefit my neighbor and where he's at and myself? How can I care for both? Especially if you're thinking your goal is to get the best deal. So I need to shade. I need to hide back the truth. I need to posture things in a certain way, maybe less than truthful. No, when you're doing that, you're after money. That's theft. That's taking what's not yours. Because if the truth was on the table, it wouldn't then be yours, at least at that price. And that's getting at the heart of this command. And it seems like, like so often as we work through these Ten Commandments, it's like the longer and the deeper we go, the more we look, the more we uncover that we are a very den of thieves. Well, that's first the very heart of thieving. But now let's turn it into ourselves and consider the heart of the thief. And for that, I want you to look with me to Joshua chapter 7. Considering now the question... What makes a thief thieve? What makes us want to steal? What's going on in our hearts so we can diagnose and understand this? And in my survey of scripture this past week, I'd say it lays out probably mainly two reasons about why people steal stuff. Uh, now, sometimes it's our basic needs drive us to steal though it's still no excuse. But for example, we come across this in the book of Proverbs. This is Proverbs chapter 6, verse 30. It says, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. What does this mean? You don't really, in a sense, blame the thief who has no way to provide for his basic necessities and he steals. There's a sympathy there. Does that mean it's okay? No. The proverb goes on and says, but if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. So stealing, even for your basic necessities, that's still not okay. We'll talk about this. It displays a lack of faith in God. But for most of us, it's not our needs that are driving us to steal, but our greeds. Our covetous desires that drive us to take things that don't belong to us. And perhaps the best or notorious archetype in Scripture of that is here with Achan in Joshua chapter 7. I trust you remember this story. In the previous chapter, it's when they go and fight Jericho, which I don't think the walls looked quite like this, but these look cool. But you remember how they fought at Jericho. Israel walked around the city all of those times, and then on the last day, those seven times, and then all the walls came tumbling down. And then the Israelite Soldiers ran into the city, and they were commanded by God not to take anything. The whole city and all the people were dedicated to destruction. that was part of the lord's ownership on this whole city of Jericho. But then the next time they went to go fight the next city, and God was going to have them do traditional warfare okay now Israel, again, this huge people group, they far outnumbered this little town of AI it was called, and yet AI beat them back. And Israel ran with a tail between their legs, and they're weeping and crying out to God, God, why did you bring us out here to be defeated? Well, here's what God said back to them as they're weeping over their defeat at Ai. Look at Joshua 7 verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? I don't think that's what Joshua expected to hear. Quit your whining and get up. As if they were blaming God. God's saying, it's not my problem. Look at verse 11. What's the problem then? Why were we defeated? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed by covenant that I commanded them. How? They have taken some of the devoted things. Everything in Jericho was to be destroyed and left. And what have they done? They have stolen. Same word from the Ten Commandments. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Do you see what happened? Achan went through Jericho, and he grabbed some of the stuff, and all of that stuff was to be left for the Lord. And sure enough, as commanded, they started casting lots. It's kind of like the ancient throwing of the dice to show, well, who is the one who is guilty? So the whole nation's standing there, and then it starts just whittling down until it's to one family and one man, Achan. And as he's been indicated by the lots, Joshua comes up to him and says, you're the guilty one, give glory to God and confess. And here, in his confession, Achan reveals the heart of the thief. Look at verse 20. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. So here's the heart of the thief. Here's what happened. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, note this, then I coveted them, or I just simply desired them and took them. There's the heart of the thief. He wants what's not his, he desires it, and so then he just grabs it and takes it. And he goes on, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. Here's the deception with the silver underneath. Achan went around and he saw what wasn't his, and then he wanted or coveted it so bad, even though it wasn't his, and he was thinking about it in his mind, and so then he stole what wasn't his, and he hid them in his tent because he knew they were not his. Now, we'll speak more about the desire and coveting when we come to that 10th commandment, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. But suffice it to say here, it's that desire, or the Bible in other places talks about it as that greed of the heart, wanting what isn't yours that you don't have right and possession to, and that leads to the sin of actually taking it, stealing theft. And we can relate to this. I trust you can. Put yourself in Achan's sandals for a second. Can you imagine the kind of things he might have been thinking that led him to then take this stuff? I'm sure you can if you think about it just for a moment. Cuz this is the kind of thing that goes in our heart all the time. I mean, who's going to miss this magnificent cloak? It it notice it's described as beautiful. Of course it is. It, it'd be such a shame to have it be burned up. It, it's been handcrafted. It was made to be worn. Oh, it'd be such a shame to have it destroyed. Oh, and the same with the silver. I mean, what good is it going to do just being left here? Somebody should use it. I'll just take a little bit. I mean, it's part of the spoils of war, isn't it? I'll put it to good use. Maybe I'll even give some to Moses. He probably would like some. No harm, no foul, no harm done. But it's not yours. Even if you can take it, it's not yours. If anyone's, it's the Lord's, and you stole it from him. And just like with Achan, whatever you've taken, you can't hide it either. The Lord always sees. But back to the heart of it, it all started with that look, that desire, that infatuation with the thing. It's seeding in your mind, telling you all the good that will come from having the thing, how much it will satisfy you, how much you deserve it, how much it will be in better hands if it's in your hands, how much even better good you can do if you had this thing. You need it. You really want it. It's as good as yours. But it's not. Even if you can take it, that desire and that taking are sin. And here's the thing. By calling it sin, And what's being revealed here in our heart? We've uncovered not just a crime. We've not uncovered merely an error or a misstep or an injustice even. What have we uncovered? You've uncovered a spiritual disease in the heart. That's the way the New New Testament talks about greed. It's a kind of greed that leads to stealing. It's called idolatry in the New Testament. It's a false, corrupted worship. Listen to this. This is Ephesians 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous or greedy, and then he explains, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. What's he saying? That coveting desire, that always wanting more, Yes, it's the heart of a thief, but it's more than this, it's a heart of a false worshiper. It's a heart of someone who wants, not God, but wants that thing. That's going to find security, that's going to find provision in that over God. It's the heart that serves and trusts in money or mammon. And remember, Jesus told us you can't serve God and money at the same time. You can't have two gods. You can't have two masters. You trust one or you trust the other. And when you're willing to steal and you're willing to cheat and you're willing to take advantage of someone else, you've placed your cards on the table and you've said, here's what I trust in. I trust in my stuff to help me more than the Lord. As I trust you start to see whether you're stealing for needs or for your greeds. That stems from a lack of trust in God in his provision, in his time, in his ways. Because it's interesting. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says you can't trust or serve God and mammon or money. Here's the next thing Jesus says. This is Matthew 6. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Therefore, so what, how are we to think in light of this? I tell you, don't be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, about what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You have to trust that God and his word, he will take care of you far more than you can take care of yourself. That's why Jesus says, and he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what's the solution for coveting and thieving? Jesus, next thing he says, stop worrying about stuff. Stop worrying about trying to provide for yourself, especially by any evil means. In other words, trust in your heavenly Father to provide for you. Let Him take care of that. You need to trust that He has all the ability to provide for you. You need to trust and believe that He has promised to provide for you just as He has. And you need to trust and believe that He's actually inclined to provide for you because He's good. Because when you steal or want to steal, you're saying He's not. He can't provide. You have to take things into your own hands. And again, that doesn't merely sin in the stealing. It shows an unbelief in the heart that can't trust God to provide. So practically then, how do we combat this kind of stealing, this kind of coveting, this kind of unbelief? Well, we've got to replace our unbelief with belief, trust in our Heavenly Father to provide And let me just seed it right here. He has provided most ultimately by giving his son. Can he not provide the rest? He can. So we place our trust not in stuff or in what we provide, but we put it in our God. And he's proven himself over and over. So what we want to look at then next is this, the heart of a repentant thief. So when you've moved your trust away from stuff, and you've put it in God to be your provider, how does that play out in your life? And for that, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go to the New Testament, and let's see this in Ephesians chapter 4. What we see in Ephesians 4 in this section, it's the one we read, of course, in the Scripture reading, is that when you've... Have that change of faith in where you place your trust. It revolutionizes and changes your whole life. It changes the way you think about everything, and it changes the way you live in regards to everything you might say. And what is that summed up like? It looks like repentance. That's the biblical term. So, for example, to begin with, the apostle underscores in verse 17 of Ephesians 4 that there must be a change in your life. Look at what he says, Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You can't live the same way now. When you were trusting in stuff, you lived a certain way. Now that you trust in Christ, you must live differently. Because the logic of Scripture is like this. If you don't live differently, then you haven't changed your mind, then you haven't changed your trust, and you haven't yet come to faith. Faith automatically changes your life. It will get worked out. And that worked out, life is a life of repentance. And what Paul shows us here is repentance always has two facets. When your life changes, when you're walking in faith, repentance looks like two things. On the one hand, you stop doing the bad. Yes, but that's not repentance. That's only part of repentance. Repentance looks like putting off the bad and what? Putting on the good to replace it. That's real, true replacement theology, not the other kind. And Paul talks about it here. You're putting off the old, yes, but it's more than that. But first, look at this. Look at verse 20. He's describing the new Christian life of repentance. You've got to be changed because he says in verse 20, but this is not the way you learned Christ, to live like the world that is. Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, what does it look like then? You must to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's the old way. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. So that's where the change begins for the thief. You have new desires now. You don't want to cheat and take advantage of people. But it's not enough to merely refrain from the evil you got to put on the new living as he goes on, verse 23. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And so you put off the old self, but now what you're to do, you're to put on the new self, a new life, a new you, made by God after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you put off the old that's stopping the bad, but you put on a new, a changed life of obedience to replace it. That's what we talk about in repentance, the Christian life. What do we say? It's a 180-degree turn. But it's not a mere turnaround and stop and just looking at Jesus, true, due by faith. But when you look at Him, you're attracted to Him and you start to walk like Him in obedience. You've been changed, not merely by just stopping, but by putting on new righteousness and holiness. Or in the words of Paul here, Created after the likeness of God. And so he gives us example after example of what this kind of repentance, the put off and put on, looks like in the changed Christian life. Let me give you just the first example. Verse 25. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood or lying, let each of you never speak a word again. You see, that's not repentance. You can't just, well, I don't want to lie, so I'm just never going to talk ever. That's not the Christian life. I mean, good for you by not lying anymore, but that's not it. Look what he says. Therefore, put because we're members of one another. You see how replacement works? You stop the evil, yes, but then you put on the replacement, the truth. Well, what does that mean for the thief? Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Now, pause there. What would be a good replacement for the thief? At the very least, you're like, well, he should stop taking stuff that's not his. Good. But again, that's not then putting on the righteousness. What is it? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather, he's going to do stuff, let him labor, work hard, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So in the first place, the put-off's pretty clear. Stop taking stuff that's not yours, right? But the immediate put-on must come with it too, and it's no surprise. you got to work hard. Sometimes this is what thieving's all about. You don't want to work, so you actually work really hard at taking stuff. Strange. But that's how messed up our minds are. But so at the very least, this is a command to don't be a taker. Don't be a mooch. Don't be a leech. Don't be a parasite living off other people's good work. In a way, taking from them what's theirs and not yours. Rather, the command is, use your life, use your energy, use your industry that God has given you. And he's saying, work hard, use it well, to provide for yourself, for one, but more than that, right? That's where it ends in verse 28. Don't merely work hard so you can provide for you, But he says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Maybe he's generous to someone else so they are not tempted to thieve. Isn't that interesting? Labor, do honest work. That you have something to share to give. Don't be a taker, but be a worker. Yes, but more than that, a provider. A generous provider. That's what it looks like when a thief becomes a Christian. When a thief repents of his stealing, yes, he stops stealing, but more than that, Christ has changed his heart. More than this, Christ lives in his heart. And so he becomes a hardworking, generous giver. Again, why? Because that's like Christ. And Christ now lives in you, he changes you, he comes out of you, so to speak. In this new life, in the words of Paul from verse 23, that's created after the likeness of God. You've got this changed mind that you no longer look to others as opportunities to cheat them out of something. Opportunities to take advantage of them, to get stuff from them. No, what a revolution. Now you look at others and you see needs that you can meet. You see stuff that that they need that you can provide because you've been working hard to have an abundance. And that's when we are finally living like Christ. Because that is entirely, isn't it, what Christ did for us? And most supremely, when we didn't deserve it. Because actually in John chapter 10, our Lord compares his ministry as the good shepherd, but who does he compare it to? He compares it to, yes, bad shepherds, but those that are thieves. Remember that? He was no thief, but he was a good shepherd. He explains this. This is John 10, verse 10. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came. And he didn't come just to give us an example, right? But I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's the consummate picture here. You're not coming to take advantage, but you're coming to give that others might live. But that came at a hard, hard, laborious price, didn't it? He didn't come to take from others, but to give. And he gave the greatest he could give. As he goes on to say, verse 11 of John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Oh, my fellow thieves and cheats, this is the way. Not to take, not to selfishly take and cheat, but to give and to selflessly give. And when we do that, we're becoming so much more like our Savior, our Redeemer, who came to actually lay down His life that thieves might be forgiven. And isn't it interesting? The great shame of the cross is that He was crucified as a criminal, do you remember the kind of criminals beside him? They were sometimes described as thieves. And he was numbered among them to be seen as a thief. When the irony is, even as he's seen as a thief, he is actually giving the greatest gift he could possibly give his very life, that all thieves that looked to him might be seen as a generous giver like him. He wasn't swept away by an angry mob. He laid down his life for sinners, for thieves, that we might have life. And so as those who have trusted in Christ know that he was counted as a thief for me, let's walk in that new abundant life. Walk in the assurance of that forgiveness and walk in the change of being not takers, but forgiven thieves that are now have a new lease on life. Not not to be selfish cheats, but generous givers, pointing all the way to the greatest giver of all. Let's pray and give him thanks for this. And as I pray, I'm going to ask the men who have been already designated to come forward to help us distribute the elements. But let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are merciful even to thieves and cheats. Uh, We confess that we are sinners. But especially as we come to this table, we confess that you are a greater Savior, and you're a great Redeemer. And may we be those who have been assured of your forgiveness, assured of the work of Christ, but assured, too, of the work of the Spirit to change us. Let us have eyes to see people around us, not as opportunities to our advantage, but opportunities to serve and meet needs, but that's what you did for us. Do that for your glory, we pray. Amen.